0: You, Hi everybody, my name is Keith Covey, and I'm very proud to be here tonight, to be a part of uh, this sponsorship weekend. Kind of nice to, uh, well, there's a lot of hot bodies in here. <laughs> you know, us alcoholics, we're hot people, that's for sure, have been all our lives, you know. Why change it now? I, um... I want to thank the uh, committee for asking uh, me to participate in the, the panel this afternoon and the the opening speaker tonight. It's always nice to get it over with. You know? <laughs> my wife also is going to be your Al-Anon speaker tomorrow, so you can hear the real truth, as Johnny H. says, you know. And um, we've really had a great weekend. Uh, my wife and I came up Tuesday, and... Uh, my son lives in uh, West Seattle, and we have a manufacturing facility up in Sumas right on the Canadian board. I went up to the manufacturing facility and stayed at my son's cabin up, way up in the top of the mountain. He's close to the earth, you know. <laughs> and uh cut his own logs uh, off this top and made his cabin out of the lumber that he cut off at the top, you know, which is kind of neat, you know. And uh spent a couple of days there and then came back Thursday night here and and Johnny and myself and my son and uh, another gentleman that we know real well went up and played golf this morning. We just had a great, great morning. You know, it was just uh, really the sun shined, you know, and we prayed to the rain god last night and he listened, you know. And uh, we really, uh, this has been a real, real wonderful uh, week for my wife and I uh so far. And, uh, you know, we really appreciate being here. Corky, uh, calls me 22 times a week sometimes. <laughs> you know, this long-distance sponsorship, you know. Uh, which, uh, is alright. Doesn't matter he calls me once or 22 times. The important thing is, uh, you know, sponsorship. I, I love sponsorship. I, my whole life in Alcoholics Anonymous has been dedicated to sponsorship. And, uh, spon- not only having a sponsor, but sponsoring other people. Being a part of real AA. Alcoholics Anonymous, the way it started. Bill Wilson talking to Dr. Bob. Sponsoring Dr. Bob didn't even know he was a sponsor, for crying out loud. You know? But it worked for him. It worked for them. And it works for us today. And it's worked for me. I celebrated 27 years on July 20th of of sobriety Nothing, you know, no alcohol, nothing from the neck up. I never took anything from the neck up. That's kind of fun to say, you know, <laughs> because there might be somebody out there that's taking something from the neck up, you know. We don't do that here, you know. We don't take anything in our system, you know, that, uh, is going to change our perception of reality. Change our perception of what al- what, what the world really is, you know. And, uh, God, you know. It's neat, you know, to be a part of this thing, to be a, be a part of uh, of something that when one drunk talks to another drunk, there's, there's movement, there's electricity, there's ions just, you know, jumping out at each other, you know? Like Peggy was saying this morning, you look through those eyes and you see behind and you see right through them and you know it's another drunk, you know? And if they're taking something, you don't see. You can't see through those eyes and it's so true, you know? This, uh, this thing is, uh, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I have a tremendous enthusiasm for Alcoholics Anonymous. And enthusiasm, I had enthusiasm for a lot of things all my life, you know. pepsi you know, football, you know, sex, you know, uh, you know, a lot of things, you know. And I always, you know, in, in sports, you know, they talk, the coaches always talk about having a lot of enthusiasm. Get out there, you know, and kill, kill, kill. And I've always had enthusiasm. But I didn't realize... What enthusiasm was until I got to this program, what it really meant, and where it, what it was derived from. And my sponsor, he said uh, one day, he said, do you really know, you know, what, where the word enthusiasm came from? And I says, no, I don't. I really don't. I just mean, to go get on you know, for And um, he said it comes from a Greek word, entheos, which means God within. And Jesus, I was amazed, you know. Because it's so true, you know, when you have an enthusiasm for something, you know, it seems to work. And it seems to, it might work only temporarily, but it works. And, uh, it's kind of nice to know that when you are enthusiastic over something like Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, it's, uh, has something to do with God. And, uh, I didn't believe in God when I got here. And I was never gonna believe in God when I got here. And, uh, I had a reason for that. My dad died when I was nine, and I was going to Christian science Sunday Sunday school, and I believed in God and Jesus and Mary Baker Eddy, you know, and all my little gold stars for believing in in God, and um, my aunt walked into a room where my sister and I were at my grandmother's house, and my dad had been in a coma for 16 days, and she walked in just when I got through saying, you know, amen, and she said my dad had just passed away. I was nine years old, and I looked up at that. Seen into that bedroom and I says, God, you dirty SOB. Uh, he just, just like somebody took a two by four and just jammed me in the back of the head and destroyed me and destroyed any image or any reality of a God in my life. And I said, I'll never believe in you again. And I've never been back to church since I was nine years old, other than an AA meetings, you know. We go to a lot of churches in AA, you know. But, uh, I eventually, naturally had to believe in God because if you don't in this program, uh, you know, I don't think you can really stay sober. I really, you may stay sober, but, uh, it won't be a happy, joyous, and free sobriety as far as I'm concerned from what I've learned since, since I've been around here. So eventually I did have to believe in God. But I, um, the two things that, uh, I like to talk about when I talk is the fact of that I always, in my whole life, before I got to alcoholics, I wanted to be important. You know, importance brought me approval from my peers, approval from society. If I felt that I was important, like first doing on a football team, touchdown pass, you know, and your picture was in paper, you know, or you won the spelling bee, or whatever, you know. When I was important, boy, you liked me. And when I wasn't important, you, uh, you know, I didn't feel that I had any approval from anybody. So from the get-go, from the time I was born, I've always had that drive and that determination and that enthusiasm just to be important, because when I was important, I felt good. And the other thing that I've learned since I've been an Alcoholics Anonymous, so the first thing is I can't be important anymore, and uh, the other thing is... uh I can't force my will on another human being, you know, because she said, all my life, I did that. All my life, I tried to force my will on you, whoever you are. It just didn't matter. And, you know, I really, you know, I, I really believe that I was an alcoholic from from birth. Uh, ever since I can remember, I felt different. Ever since I remember. From before kindergarten, I felt different. Uh, in kindergarten, my teacher came up to me one day, she said, Kathy. And Jesus, you know, I looked up and I said, "This Mrs. Fullerton, my name is Keith. I wanted to be a man in Candy Garden. Now, you know, I think that's alcoholic. I really do. You know, Johnny didn't care what his name was. John didn't care what his name was. Johnny and Richard didn't care what he was. Dickie, you know, and you know, but I just didn't want to be called Keithy. And I said, Mrs. Fullerton, my name is Keith. And she says, I know Keithy and I wanted to hit her. I wanted to smack her right in the mouth, you know. And uh, she said, you've been chosen to recite a poem at the Easter pageant. And I, you know, no way. And No way we alcoholics can perform to perfection. No way, you know. No way this one could. So I said those alcoholic words that probably everyone in this has said thousands of times. I know I've said it hundreds of times. And I looked up at my teacher. I'm just a little tyke, you know. I said, uh, but Mrs. Fullerton, you don't understand. How many times, you know, have we said that? You, you know, you don't understand. My, well, I didn't say this, but my case is different. Has been, had been, and has been ever since then, really. My case really is different. And she said, well, I don't care, Keithy you know. <laughs> you're going to recite the poem. And so at the Easter pageant in Jefferson Grammar School in East Bakersfield, California, where I was born and raised, when well, my name was called I knew, almost to, to to perfection, that I wasn't going to screw up. You know why? Because I had gone home from that day to the Easter page and I practiced, and I practiced, and I practiced, and I practiced, and I practiced. I I just knew that if I couldn't get up there and screw up, because you would hate me. And I already didn't feel as good, and I already didn't like myself, you know, and I just didn't want to compound that. So I got up there at that uh, Easter pageant and when I was called up to the Podium in this uh, pageant, you know, that the the whole student body was there, you know, and I got up there and I had, I said to uh, to myself, uh, now I forget the prayer, (laughs) I mean the poem, oh twinkle twinkle little star, oh I wonder where you are to perfection, and I didn't miss a beat, didn't miss a beat, and you know what I got from you? I got approval, God, you know. This alcoholic needed approval all his life. I still need approval. I need it in a different way today. You know, I don't need it in the same way that I used to need it. But Jesus, I needed approval. I got it. Man, how good it felt. So, so good when I got off that point. The kids said, gee, you did real good. You know, everything good. you sounded good. You breathe. You said that prayer good. And, you know, from that point to this point, And especially the first thirty eight years of my life. Because I got to Alcoholics Thomas when I was thirty eight years old. I have overachieved for approval, I've underachieved for approval, I've lied for approval, you know, I've stolen for approval. I've written hot checks for approval. You know? I've done everything in the world for your approval. And I couldn't find it, really. I could find it only temporarily, you know. Just spurts of approval. Couldn't get it. Couldn't master that feeling of not wanting your approval, which really we have to master because we can't get everybody's approval all the time. And uh boy, I I did everything in the world for it. And um I call myself kind of a seventy five percenter because it seems like all my life, prior to Alcoholics Anonymous and a few years into Alcoholics Anonymous I could go up that ladder of success about seventy five percent of the way. Everything clicking, you know. Everything working, you know. Approval working. Everything feeling good, you know. Forcing my will on people, and they accepting it. You know, I'm just everything going good, and all of a sudden I would fail. You know, I could never get over that three quarters mark, and I'd fail and have to start all over again. And I never knew, you know, what, why me? You know, why me? Why can't I make it? I never knew until I got to this program how to really make it. And, uh, you know, I started out in grammar school and I uh, went through the first six grades and I became tetherball ball champion because I had to. Uh, we had a class, a sixth grade class that knitted Afghans to send over to the guys fighting the Second World War because it was winter t- gonna be winter time. And the one that knitted the most Afghans won the biggest prize. I beat every girl in the whole class, you know. <laughs> I had to. I had to. Because if I didn't, I would feel like a piece of crap, you know. I had to, had to, had to be that number one. And I fought it and I, you know, I just, uh, all my life, you know, needed that importance, needed that feeling of being somebody and could never make it. And I hadn't had a drink yet, you know. But I had the disease of alcoholism. I really believe that. I had it right from the time that Dr. Slapped me on the rear and let out the first cry. I, uh, my father was a fantastic guy and, uh, at nine years old I marched in the Armistice Day Parade with him and sixteen days later he died of a tumor inside of his brain. And, uh, it damn near destroyed me. It damn near destroyed me. Cause, uh, I loved my father. Jesus, he was just, we had a couple of gold mines up in the high sears and he took me fishing, trout fishing up in the high sears and taught me how to stand on the right side of the creek where my my shadow wouldn't enter the water so the count would know I wasn't there and I could get my limit and man, I got my limit doing that and I thought, what a brilliant man, you know Jesus, he knew everything and he hit. He was just a great guy and when he left my life, you know I thought, Jesus, you know what am I going to do? and the first thing in my mind was to be the man of the family at 9 years old you know, I figured I'm going to be the man of the family I got a job, I didn't get one job I got three jobs, you know total so alcoholic. And I was going to take that first check, and I was going to bring it home to mom, you know, and be the man of the family at nine, you know. And I got that first check, and I started home, and I said, no, I think I'll go to Ferris's market, you know, the little market where everybody hangs out, and say, Mr. Ferris, cash my check, will you, you know, to make me feel important? And he cashed my check, and I took that money, and I was going to take it home to mom. And all of a sudden, I saw all my girlfriends and my buddies out there hanging around like you do, you know, in those days. And, uh. I said, Mr. Ferris, see all my buddies out there, my girlfriends? He said, yeah. I said, buy them whatever they want. Buy them, you know, candy, ice cream, whatever they want. And he says, Keith, you don't want to do that. Take your money home, put it in the bank, save No, no, buy them whatever they want. That's what I want to do. I wanted that, buy your love. I wanted to feel important again. And they all came in and they bought ice cream and everything. And God, I felt so great. Temporarily. I felt so fantastic for a while, and when it was all over, I started to walk home the two blocks to my house, empty pockets, no money, the big G sets in, you know, when you're guilty, you're guilty, you know, there's no other way about it. and I felt so guilty, what am I going to tell mom, because she expected that money, what am I going to, you know, God, I just hate myself, and that was, you know, that was uh, happened over and over and over and over and over again in this alcoholic's life. And I got home, you know, and I did lie to her, you know. God, you know, when we lie, you know, we feel good
1: temporarily
0: also. And then all of a sudden, we feel terrible. And felt terrible again. Anyway, I became 13 all of a sudden. I don't remember when you were 13, but boy, when I was 13, I had white hair stuck straight up. I had acne on my face, it was so bad, I'd look at myself in the mirror, and I'd say, how oh, can anybody ever love me? You know, I am so ugly, and I was, you know, I was terrible, I was tall, I was skinny, And almost like olive oil and Popeye, remember olive oil? And I wanted an arm like Joe louis so I could whip people, and, you know, be important, and just crush people, you know, I just wanted to be tough, for crying out loud, and I was tall, and I was skinny, and I was ugly, and God, I was terrible. Every Christmas Eve, my mother had nine sisters and four brothers, all Swedes, all drunks. Married, two of my aunts married into an Italian family, had nine brothers. Most of them were drunks, you know, not all of them. But, uh, we had these big, gigantic Christmas Eve parties, and Santa Claus came at, uh, eight o'clock, every Christmas Eve, brought me that present, the when I rode away to the, to, to the, to the North Pole for. It. And he came, you know, he came, brought me that present, and I, and Jesus, I'd make the Santa Claus till I was 21, you know. So then he brought me, and I really thought he was Santa Claus for many, many years, you know. But I was 13, and I was ugly, and I, God, I just, I was going to be an athlete all my life. From the time I can remember, I loved athletics. I loved to work out, I loved to play, I loved to win, you know. And I said, I'm never going to drink, and I'm never going to smoke, because athletes don't drink or smoke. So that was something I had said to myself when I was really young, and I was never going to do that. But I'm 13, and my cousins are trying to get me to dance with them. Jesus, you know. I couldn't even get close to a girl. I couldn't get close to a girl with this ugly face, you know, and that acne. I was just, you know, I knew that they would never love me anyway, so why get close to them? And um, I thought, Jesus, everybody's laughing and having a good time. Maybe I, I better take a drink of that stuff that they're drinking, you know. And I went in, and I stole a bottle of beer, and I went in the back closet of this big old house there. Took that top off, and I took a big old drink, you know, and God, it hit my mouth, and it burned, got here, and I coughed, you know. I thought, God, how can they like this stuff? Except what happens to every alcoholic. A little bit dribbled down. I took another drink, and it went down pretty good. I took another drink, and it went down better, you know, and all of a sudden, it just kind of hits the bottom of your tummy and trickles up your back and makes your hair feel good and your toenails feel good and everything in between, you know. And the magic happened, you know. Alcohol became the magic of my life. And I drank maybe eight or nine sprigs off that bottle, and I went out there and learned how to jitterbug that night. You know? I learned how to love, you know. I learned how to, you know, to talk. I learned how to walk. I learned how to be somebody. And God, it was a mag just a magical feeling. A magical feeling. Alcohol was my answer. And I drank more, and I'd go back and take two or three more swigs off that bottle, because I hid it there, you know, I didn't want them to know I was drinking, you know, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, I get sick, and I
1: vomit,
0: you know, and I throw up, you know, and next morning, I just thought, well, that's part of drinking, you know, and I did it many times after that, but you know, alcohol became a way of life, and I, and I drank every opportunity I could drink from age 13 to age 38. Every single opportunity. If you were going to go out for the for Friday night and have a good time, I start at three in the afternoon to get ready, you know, to have fun, you know. And in the, uh, the later years, you know, that uh, getting ready, you know, you get to the party, you're so drunk you can't have any fun, you know. You pass out and do all kinds of crazy things. But I uh, I drank every chance I could drink, every opportunity I could drink, and um, I also became a good athlete. I lettered in uh, four sports in four years in high school, and uh, I was good. I was a good athlete and I, um, became student body president of my class, of my, uh, of my school, my senior year. And, uh, I didn't think I deserved it, you know. The only reason they voted for me is because I was an athlete, I said, you know. And, uh, but, uh, it seemed to be that my life was getting a little bit successful. And uh, I was getting my name in the paper and my picture in the paper for being a good athlete. I won the Sam Lynn Trophy at East Bakersfield High School, who's for the whole city. For the most outstanding athlete. God, jeez, I just, you know, felt so good, you know. It was just a marvelous feeling. And I had to get real drunk, though, at that. My uncle Pete, uh, that we had these big parties in, he thought during the World War II that the, they were going to send all the booze to, to the army, I guess. And so he filled his garage plumb full of booze. Cases of beer, cases of wine, cases of whiskey, vodka, and everything. From front to back. And I knew about that. And so I took the back window off of this garage. It was a permanent window. It, you know, chiseled it and chiseled it and hammered it and got it where I could just take it off. And I'd go in and get what I wanted. And I'd take it and we'd go out to the Kern River. And then we'd have a ball, you know. And I, it was important, because I had the booze, but I didn't tell any of my buddies where I was getting it, you know. I said, i just going to get it for you. God, they loved me. They thought I was the greatest thing that... You know, since twice bread, for kind of We used to go out there, and we used to have, we used to chase the bunny rabbits down the hot roads And when, when the moon was coming up. We'd get in the bushes with the girls, and, you know, we used to shoot uh, cigarettes out of our mouths with twenty twos, Real smart, you know. I wonder we didn't kill somebody, you know. But we used to have a ball. I mean, that was fun. That was, that was really getting with it and being a part of. And I did that all through high school. Anyway, I graduated from high school, and I uh, got a scholarship to Stanford. And I thought, Jesus, this is great. I can get my education. And I went up to Stanford in the spring, and uh God, all those kids had $100 bills in their pockets. They're driving convertibles with white tops, and their doc- their fathers were doctors and lawyers. And I got out in that or Highway, and I hitchhiked. I had a ticket to come home. I hitchhiked home. I had to run away from that because we alcoholics love to run away from things where we're not comfortable. I know this one always did. I got home and went to Bakersfield Junior College, and thank God I did. Because um, I could drink a lot, you know, and I could screw up a lot, and I I could be important, and I could be somebody. And uh, I went to Bakersfield College, and uh, we had probably one of the greatest football teams that ever lived. We beat one team 96 to 6, and we gave them the six points. (laughs) And we beat another team 105 to nothing, and we didn't give them any points because we didn't like them, you know. (laughs) And uh, on that team was Frank Gifford. And myself and Sid Hall and six of us, so I went into in college and pros, uh, to the pros after that. But we were good and we, we, you know, we really functioned well. The only problem was, got B's and us and every subject except football, baseball, basketball, track. And drank a lot. You know, just drank as much as I could possibly drink. And, uh, place to go to East Berry's High School, is Girl Watch. You know, guys like the Girl Watch. I bet you like the Girl Watch. Huh? I liked it. You know. And I used to watch these girls film coming out of the music center and all of a sudden this cow come trancing out of the music center and I mean she was gorgeous. I'd never seen her before. And she had long brown hair and beautiful skin and she was bobbing along pretty good, pretty well adopted, you know. <laughs> and uh my eyes were focused naturally. I said to Tommy Latham, Who's that? And I said, Well, that's Sally Peters. She just moved here from Oklahoma and I said, I'm gonna marry her. I'm gonna marry her. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I'm going to marry her. She's beautiful. Four months later, we were married. She was 16 and I was 18. God, you know, just young, punk kids, you know, still wet behind the ears. And we trudged off to San Jose State uh, for a football scholarship. And I had to get my grades up in order to play football the next year. And we alcoholics, you know, when we make up mind to do something, we usually can do it, you know, temporarily. And I got my grades up. And uh, we got us a little apartment. And uh, football season started the next year. And, you know, my life was pretty good. Playing ball. And uh, we had two kids the first two years. Just boom, boom, you know, two little babies. And it was marvelous. And Didn't have any money ever, you know. When we did have a, when I had a buck on Friday, I used to say, well, shall I go home and buy the babies some milk, which they probably need? Or should I go to Tent and Keys and have a beer, you know? And every single time, tens and keys, never took that dollar home. And then I'd come home two or three in the morning on my bicycle. I didn't have a car. I'd ride my bicycle home drunk, out of my mind. And I'd get home. Jesus! Now the yelling and the screaming started. You know, where have you been? And why did you get drunk? And why didn't you bring the money home? And on and on and on. It started my first year or two years of marriage. It went on for (laughs) 18 years. You know. Because I'm an alcoholic, you know, and I drink too much. And when you drink too much, you do crazy things. Anyway, I graduated from San Jose and I got drafted by the 49ers. And I thought, Jesus, you know, if I can just make that 49er football team, you know, man, I'll have money, I'll have property, I'll have prestige, I'll be able to buy that little white picket fence, the house with the white picket fence, you know, I'll get the kids an education. So I signed my contract with uh, Tony Morbido, the owner at the time, and. I said to myself, I'm going to do extra setups, I'm going to do extra laps, I'm going to work out extra, and I did. I worked out so hard, and my body was tough as wood. Well, and it was just tough, and I was making it. And um, six days into the rookie practice, though, there was a little halfback named Joe Arenas, and he said to me, he said, hey, Garth, how would you like a beer? And man, we were locked into this camp. We couldn't even do, we couldn't even call home for crying out loud, you know? We hit that field at 5 in the morning and we worked out for 4 or 5 hours and we came back in and had lunch and, you know, then playbooks and then back out in the field for 4 or 5 hours and then back in and have dinner and, you know, more playbooks and watching movies and at 9 o'clock lights out and you better be in that bed and the next morning the same thing. I mean, that was a routine. And, well that's a lot of football, a lot of a lot of a uh, strenuous work, a lot of mental work. Anyway, about six days of practice, Joe said, I was like a beer. I said, my God, I love a beer. Cause I, I love, I'm a beer drinker, all the way. And I said, i love, how do you do that? He says, put some pillows in your bed. We go down to, uh, Renton City. We were at Menlo Park Community College in those years, and he said, we do it every year. And We have a bat. We have a ball. We have some beers and some laughs. That's great. went down there and, uh, sat at that bar and thought, man, I made it. I'm a, I'm a member of the 49ers. You know, I was six days, you know, on the team. And, uh, Guys like Leo Namalini, Leo Namalini and uh, Frankie Albert and Y.E. Tittle and Billy Wilson and, you know, Gordy Salt sitting there, you know, and I man, I am part of this thing. I, I'm drinking beer with the boys. The sad part about that is I got drunk that night. I drank 6, 7, 8, 10, 12, I don't know, as many as I could drink. There's a guys drank a few and had a few laughs and, you know, that was it. And Joe Renis, he got drunk. He just, he drank as much as many as he could. And the next morning I hit that field, that hangover, you know. And my head was pounding. And a guy named Bruno Banducci was seven years off pro with the Niners. He hit me and drove me up in the air and just right smashed me on my back, you know. My head hit the damn turf and it just went, boom, boom, you know, God. I said, <laughs> you know what I said? I said what well, we've always said. I'll never, ever, ever drink again as long as I live. And that's a promise, you know. I just never will. And, uh, you know, the promises only last as long as, you know, we have the opportunity to take another drink, because we're alcoholics, we we drink, you know? that's what we do, we do that best. Anyway, halfway through the season, I decided that there was a guy named Ed Hinkey played defensive end, he had played in the Canadian League, and he, he got a call from uh, Edmund and Eskimos saying that they needed the ball player up there, and uh If there was anybody that would come, they would double their contract, whatever their contract was, they'd double it. That's a lot of money, you know, double. And so Ed said, why don't you call Frankie Anderson, talk to him. So I called Frankie and and talked to him. He says, if you get on a plane tomorrow, he says, the minute you get here, I'll give you a bonus and I'll double your contract. And I said, man, okay. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell him. Buck Shaw, who was a coach, I didn't tell Tony Morbido. I didn't tell anybody, except my wife, and Ed Hinckley, he Was the only ones who, I got on that plane and just left. You know, ran away again, didn't think I was really making it, but I, I really think I was making it, but I just didn't think I was. Didn't have the confidence, you know, that the alcoholics need so desperately, and I got up there, and I played that year, and they traded me the next year to the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, and the Winnipeg Blue Bombers traded me the next year to the Edmonton Eskimos, and they ended up playing... For five professional football teams never made never made it really you know i made it long enough to play and get traded you know get and get traded you know but uh i never really felt in my heart in my gut that i made it and I, in the, the last year i just said screw it and i went home and i got back to uh to la uh to Vegasville and became a car salesman you know because uh i just uh Didn't have any answers, didn't, and just knew that I I would never make the the pros, you know, because I kept getting traded all the time. I went back and my wife and I uh, had another baby and uh, started to live life, you know, tried to be a husband, tried to be a father, tried to be a worker, and, you know, nothing seemed to work out, you know. It's just that 75%. You know, I'd climb up and I'd fail, climb up and I'd fail over and over and over again. Finally, I got to the point where I told her, I said, we got to move to Los Angeles where the milk and honey is, you know, and uh, convinced her, you know, that uh, we'd never make it in Vegas. You know? and we went to Los Angeles and I got another job and I was selling cars. And then finally, I got the job of my life. I got a job selling swimming pool boilers and it was a great job. And I was working my fanny off and I thought, boy, I'm really doing good. And I was making them big commission checks, you know. And things were good and we had a little house out in Woodland Hills with a white picket fence, you know, and I thought, Jesus, my life is really gonna make it. I'm really gonna make it. And my uh the boss the owner of the company called me into his office one day. He says, Keith, I want you to meet me in the office at two o'clock. I says fine. I showed up with my best suit and my best tie and Yes Mr. Ritz, how's everything? And he says, Just fine, Keith, except you're fired. Yeah, and I and I looked at him and I says, What are you talking about? I'm your best salesman. He says, yeah, but you owe all my customers' money. He says, you got hot checks all over the place. He says, you're my best salesman, but you're my worst employee. He says, see that door? He says, get your butt out of there and don't ever come back. And, you know, I walked in there thinking I was going to be national sales manager, you know. I really did, you know. And I walked out and I went home and I said, honey, quit my job, you know. <laughs> I'm going into business for myself. And I went. I went into business for myself, swimming pool, swimming pool. I call myself, uh, poolside sales and service. And I, uh, clean swimming pools and, uh, stole money from my customers for the next four years. I, uh, I built my rod up to 75 customers. I had Kim Novak on my customer. I had Red Skelton. And I had all these stars, Kirk and Douglas, and everything. I thought, man, I'm really making it. My life is going to be good, you know. And all of a sudden I woke up one day, you know, and I had 10 accounts left. And they were writing letters firing me saying, my wife caught you urinating in this pool this morning, you know, we don't we don't allow that, you know, and I was drinking 20 to 40 half-quarts of beer a day for trial kind out, of and then if I really needed to uh, to pay a bar bill off or needed to drink more, I'd short a motor up, and just short it out, and I'd tell the customer, well, you need a new motor, and I'd take that motor home, and I'd paint it and bring it back and sell it to them, their own motor, you know. For a score of 85 bucks, you know. And then if I was really serious and really needed to pay off a bill or, you know, really was behind, I'd I'd put a little pinhole in their heater, you know, and I'd take their whole heater out, paint it, bring it back, and charge them $800 or $1,000, you know. I was a thief. I was just a a grand thief. And I was good at it. Never got caught, you know. But I did get caught doing one thing. I started writing them checks. You know, go to these bars and... Tell those wild stories, you know, who I was, an ex-football player, an ex-this, and ex-everything, and buy the, buy the house drinks, you know, to the bartender. And I'd write a hot check, you know, because they didn't have money in the bank. But I needed that approval so bad. Jesus, I needed that approval so bad. And so, uh, one day I got a knock on the door, and it was a sergeant, and they took me to, took me to, uh, to jail, you know, and I had, uh, I don't know how many accounts of, uh, you know, felony checks and uh, went through that whole series you know of court appearances and everything you know and I thought I was doing real well and I was lying through my teeth you know I had a public defender and geez, you chill know, we I thought we were really making it and finally the judge, you know that damn gavel went down guilty you know Jesus you know <laughs> and you know I just you know I was miserable and because I had never had you know any prior felony uh accounts against me. I uh, I didn't go to prison. I came that close. That close. And I did uh you know, get probation and uh had to pay money back and all that and you know, and God I used to hate to go to that probation officer. You know, me? Excellent welfare? I'm a I'm a husband you know, a good husband and I'm a father and you know, I'm trying to make it in life, you know, and Jesus I just hated it. Just absolutely hated it. I had to go through all that. Later on, I heard that uh, Joe Arenas, that kid that uh, was a halfback for the Niners, I heard that uh, he was a three-time loser of writing felony checks. Full-time blown-out al- alcoholic. And uh, he died in prison uh, choking on his own vomit. You know? And He didn't make Alcoholics Anonymous. You know? I mean, the people are in this room, and myself especially, I mean, we're lucky people. We're lucky people to be here for a Because I did make Alcoholics Anonymous. The way I made Alcoholics Anonymous was... Uh, my wife, uh, I came home one morning and she said, I made an appointment at the National Council on Alcoholism. You're going to go with me. You know, and I thought, oh, Jesus, you know. I just said, do me a favor. I'll go with you if you just don't yell and scream, you know. Because, you know, she used to, God, she used to, you got back to back like a garbage, you know. Where's your willpower? And you're an alcoholic. You know, that horrible word, you know. <laughs> Jesus. You know, I just... We got in our pickup. We went down there, and a man uh, met us, and he, for one hour, he told me this horrendous story. He was making a 12-step call. I didn't know what the hell alcoholics was anonymous or AA was all about, and he told me this horrendous story. He chased his mother with a butcher knife. That's an alcoholic, you know. I love my mother for crying out loud. <laughs> We walked out of there, and she had gone up and talked to an Al-Anon gal upstairs, and we walked out of there, and... You know, and he told Sally, he says, she's not ready yet. She didn't know what he meant. He says, He's just not ready. And I walked out of there, and for nine more months, I drank. I used to drink for three and four weeks, and just couldn't get drunk and couldn't get sober, you know. Trying to find the magic of that first drink when I was 13, you know, how it felt and what it did to me. And I just couldn't find it. I was 310, 320 pounds of fat, bloated, you know, ugly again, hated myself, couldn't work lost all those pools, didn't have any money, owed forty, sixty, I don't know, hundred thousand dollars. I have no idea what I owed, you know. I, I was just in a miserable, miserable place in life. I kept drinking and I buy two half quarts of beer and I go up on Mulholland and I'd sit in that pickup, you know, and just couldn't make it that day and couldn't work that day because I was so hungover from the day before and, I just finally figured out what was wrong with me. I looked down at those people driving down the freeway in a nice car and a nice coat and a nice tie, and I knew that they were going to work, and I knew they were good husbands, and I knew they were good people, and I was a rotten, no-good person at that point in my life, you know. And I just felt so miserable. I wanted to quit suicide, didn't have the guts to do it. And I just, I, I finally came to the conclusion that I know why I am who I am, and the reason that I am who I am, and the reason that you know, Frank Gifford, I went all the way through school and made it and made a made a real brilliant career for himself, you know, why he made it and why I didn't. And the reason was up here in this mind was that I will never make it. I'm just one of those persons that will never make it. And I might as well accept it now. And that's what I said to myself. I went down and started drinking again. July nineteenth I had drink I had drunk for thirteen weeks pardon me, not 13 weeks, three weeks. And I couldn't get drunk, couldn't get sober. And I drove to Bakersfield to have Basque food. Anybody ever been to Bakersfield and had Basque food? It's the greatest food in the world. And I put a bottle of wine in front of every damn three or four people. I went up there and I drank, you know. Jesus Christ. I threw up all over the table. And I knew J.B. because I was born and raised on Baker Street. And I knew him real well. And I went in and I cleaned myself off. And I went back and demanded that he serve me again, you know. Just, you know, wild wild alcoholic. Got home. Don't even know how I got home. Don't even know how I got home from Baker's. It was a hundred miles to my house in Woodland Hills. And the next morning I woke up. My wife had never been to Al Anon, but she knew that I had a drinking problem. Serious <laughs> no, drinking problem. See we had one of those little guns where you make the numbers, you know, and you peel them off and you stick them on things. And she had taken a number from this fellow down at the National Council on Alcoholism and uh, she took that number, and she had plastered it all over the house. For nine months, I looked at that stupid A&A number, you know, thinking, I'm never going to call that. She put it on the phone in the hall. She put it on the refrigerator. She put it on the mirror in the bedroom, the mirror in the bathroom. She put it everywhere, at a coffee table, you know. And I'd look at that number, and I'd go out and drink, you know. I was never going to call A&A. But this morning, I woke up. It was July 19th, the night that I... Went to Vegas Road the next morning, July twentieth, and I crawled out of bed. Because I couldn't even walk. I was so hung over, I was so fat, so bloated, you know, so out of shape. I was just miserable. And I literally crawled into the porcelain altar. You know, with that wooden seat, you know. And I'd get my head up against that porcelain. Oh, God, it felt so good, you know. Woo, <laughs> you know. And I lifted up that seat, and I'm, uh, you know, I only not even given it 110%. It's going good. I looked down, on the porcelain was three nine two two six two six. You got the A, but I got here through a toilet bowl, you know. <laughs> and you know say you know what I'm saying it's okay? Yeah. It doesn't matter how you get here. It doesn't matter how you get here as long as you get here, you know, if you have the disease of alcoholism. Because I looked at that number and I thought, oh maybe I'd better call ANA and I got up and I cleaned myself off and I took 17 steps into the hog because I couldn't remember the number. My brain was so full of fog. I got in there, and I looked at that number, and I dialed that number. It was 20 minutes to 9 in the morning, and that was Clancy's number. I didn't know who Clancy was. I thought it was a stupid name. You know? <laughs> and uh, he answered the phone, and I said, is this where I was supposed to call if I have a drinking problem? He says, well, let me ask you a question. Do you have a drinking problem? I said, I don't know if I have a drinking problem. My wife hates me, and my kids are. just hate me. And the wife's divorced me. Mean, he said, Wait a minute. I said, Well what do you want? And he says, You got a drinking problem, you know. And I was mad. I said, How do you know I got a drinking problem? You're way over there and I'm way over here And he says, I know you got a drinking problem, kid and he hung the phone up. Jesus, I was so mad. I lowered myself to call 8-8-8, and he hangs the phone up my ear. I went out and I got in my pickup truck. My wife had gotten a little job to try to get enough money to divorce me. And I got in this truck, and there was an up straight piece of metal in it. Both bumpers were wired up. It was only a year and a half old, you know. I never hit anything. Never hit anything. A lot of people hit me, you know. And I opened the door, and she took all these cans of beers upside down, some of them half full, you know, a quarter full, and poured this beer and pyramided these cans. When I opened the door, they all fell on me. Oh, you know. picking them damn cans. And I said, I lowered myself to call A&A and I drove to the liquor store about three blocks away. And I bought one half quart of beer and a pack of Salem cigarettes because I was smoking three packs a day. And I got in that pickup and I lit that cigarette and I popped that beer. You know, and I started the motor and I got out on Dumet Street. Beautiful pepper trees. Real pretty street. And I just downed that beer, you know. Oh, God. It tastes so good. I put the cold can on my head, you know. Oh, that was heaven, you know. And then... From the cigarette smoke and the fact that I was, you know, just had all that basque food still in me, I started to throw up. And I'm driving, you know, and I'm starting to throw up, and I started to cough, and it just went all over the windshield. I couldn't see where I was going, and I thought, I'll fix that. I'll turn the windshield wipers on, you know? (laughs) Turn the windshield wipers on, nothing happened, right? I stopped the motor, and I remember wiping the vomit off of my arm, you know? Just, you know, feeling so terrible feel so miserable again. And then I remember Clancy says, Hey, I'm shaving and I got to go to work. I'll call you later. <laughs> I remembered that then. And I went home and I stared at the phone, knowing that he wouldn't call. Nobody, no, nobody's going to pay attention to me. And the phone rang and it was him. And we talked and he sent a man out to my house that was a bartender at work nights. And I had my last drink at five minutes to nine on July 20th. That man showed up about 10 o'clock in the morning. I called my wife. She rushed home. She had a, a book, you know, a scrapbook of how to stop drinking, you know. <laughs> she was going to tell him, you know, how to tell me to stop drinking, you know. Anyway, he, uh, he told me, uh, he, he, he told me a story and, uh, something happened and they took me to my first meeting that night and I met Clancy that night and uh, he became my sponsor that night. And, uh, they took me to my first five meetings. Thank God. My ego and my pride probably would not have allowed me to go. In fact, I am almost positive 100% that I would have never gone again. But they came and picked me up. Took me to those meetings, you know. And something happened. Something happened to me that uh, is called surrender, you know. I surrendered somehow. I figured I'd stick around for a couple of weeks and learn how to drink a six-pack, you know. And everything would be okay. And, you know, the magic happens, you know. One drunk talking to another drunk. And sitting and talking with Clancy, you know. And sitting and talking with, you know, Jim Shaw and Johnny Harris and, you know, Clint Hodges and, you know, all these guys, Chuck Nesbitt and these guys that were making it and doing good and they It started to rub off. Started to rub off. And, uh, from that moment to this moment, I've never had a a drink of alcohol. I never did have a drug problem. Never took a drug in my life. I never have had a drink since Five minutes to nine, July 20th, 1967. And um, there's got to be reasons for any of us to stay sober. And the main reason, it's called A&A, you know. It's called the basic principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I really believe that the basic principles of Alcoholics Anonymous is one drunk talking to another drunk. Sponsorship. or well, not sponsorship to the beginning, but just one drunk talking to another drunk. And I believe that that to me, is what starts us on the road to recovery and then we recover the rest of our life. We never ever cure the disease of alcoholism. We just keep arresting it by going to meetings and not drinking between meetings. By doing the stupid things, you know, that's so stupid when you when you get here. Pick up the ashtrays, you know, clean the ashtrays. I mean, Jesus, man, I'm an ex-football player. I'm do that, you know. Well, that's not going to keep me sober, you know. And, you know, being just obstinate, you know, and fighting things. and But you see other people doing it, and they're making it. And they seem to be happy. They've got that smile on their face. And, you know, that, Jesus, you know, that smile that you want so bad, and you know you're never going to get. You know, that feeling of contentment, that feeling of happiness feeling of, you know, happy, joyous, and free, as it says in the book. And I wanted it so bad that I started working for it. you got to earn the right to be sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't just get it like that. It don't happen like that. There's no flash of light that you've ever got me sober. I got sober because I did things in Alcoholics Anonymous, because I had a sponsor that was active and was doing things in Alcoholics Anonymous. I had a sponsor and people around me, my peers, that were making commitments to people and places and things in Alcoholics Anonymous, and they were feeling good about it. And I started doing that, and I started feeling good about it. And I got active, and I got important again, you know, like we all do. I, you know, I had, uh, I, I had a pan of to hatch hatchby and I wouldn't let it go. I had it for four years. I wouldn't let anybody else take it over. It's supposed to be rotating cruise ship, you know. And it probably got to the point where, you know, I got thrown up. Probably, you know? But, you know, and I started to think all sober sailors, you know, and I got real important with that. And, you know, it kind of just became my life for trying out loud. And it was a fantastic day. We had fantastic uh, cruises, all members of AA and L and And we just had a ball, but it got, You know, got to the point where I was the big cheese. I was the important person. And I liked it. I liked it. I liked it to the point where I almost got drunk. You know, because we can't be important in Alcoholics Anonymous. And probably into 7 to 10, maybe 12 years of my first years in Alcoholics Anonymous, I got important many times. And many times, the only thing that saved me was sponsorship. The only thing that saved me was sponsorship. Going to my sponsor and saying, Jesus, you know, I just, you know, don't know what's wrong with me. You know, I felt so good and things were going so good and now I feel so rotten, you know, and I just don't know what to do about it, you know. When I was two years sober, I did that, and I, my sponsor was, you know, I thought, God, he was nuts, you know. I didn't want him around anymore. And... My peers, you know, what do they really know? What are those first hundred drunks really? How could they write the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous? you know? You know, got complacent, you know, which we all do in AA. We all do. And I uh, thank God, Clancy gave me a dime. And he took it and put it in my wallet way down in the corner when I was brand new. He says, kid, if you ever want to run away from AA, remember that dime's there and call me first. He says, how smart these sponsors are, you know. They know we're going to run away, you know. And I uh, remember that stupid dime there, and I called Clancy. I said, Clancy, I hate you. I hate AA. I got a job in Saudi Arabia making $10 million. I'm going to go over there. I got an 18-month contract, and I'm going to come back, and I'm paying everything off and buy that little white house with the white picket fence. And he said, wait a minute. He says, come on down first. And I went down to his uh, office on 9th Street in Los Angeles and left his office. and. You know, I said, hey, you know, I just don't have any answers and I'm leaving. He says, before you do that, he says, don't you think you ought to take the third step? And I says, Clancy, I, you know, I told you I was never going to believe in God. I told you the story of my dad. I said, don't you remember? He says, yeah, I remember. And I said, you didn't tell me I had to believe in God when I got here. And he says, yeah, I didn't tell you that. He said, but I did tell you something. He said, I told you that you better take the third step and put it up on a shelf. Because someday you might want to reach for it. And uh, I said, yeah. Well, not a dumb, stupid thing. Like Kenny got... I thought it was so (laughs) stupid, you know. And he says, it's time to reach. And he said, get your butt out that door and don't come back until you've taken the third step. And I said, oh, okay. And I started to walk out. I got about halfway and I turned around and said, wait a minute. You're my sponsor, aren't you? And he says, well, I was, you know. <laughs> and he, he said, I says, you tell me how to take that. I don't know how to take that. I don't know how to turn my life over and care with God that I don't understand, don't care about, and turn it off when I was mine. And he looked at me and he says, Keith, I can't tell you how. He says, something that I can't tell you. It's something that a sponsor really can't tell anybody. We can ask you to take it, and you can read the big book, and you can get a lot of information from there. I said, but I cannot tell you how to do that. He says, you have to have the desire to do it, and maybe it'll happen. He says, get out. Don't come back. Well, I got in my truck, and I was driving down the freeway, and it came out in this fabulous way as far as I'm concerned. came out, why don't you try to accept the seemingly bad things as well as the good things that happened to you, you big, dumb Swede. And I kicked it around. I kicked it around. I kicked it around. I thought about it. I thought about it, and I'm driving down the freeway. And all of a sudden, I thought, you know, maybe that's a way that I can do this stupid third step. Turn my life into the little power greater in myself. And I went home, and that night, I hadn't prayed to this point, because I was never going to pray. And I said, dear God, I'll put this into a prayer, and I'll say it every night and every morning for three weeks to test it, to see if it might work. And I uh, said, dear God, as I understand, please help me to accept the seemingly bad as well as the good things as this are my growth. Amen. Didn't think it was going to ever mean anything to me. The next morning, I got up. Dear God, as I understand, please help me to accept the seemingly bad as well as the good things That's my growth. Amen. Went about my life. Went about my things, my chores. And uh two weeks later, I, I'm in the nest on Victory Boulevard. Mary Regan was running a fabulous, fabulous place for sober members of AA. And I uh, was at this meeting and I'm sitting there and I pass out because there's a knife jabbing me in the heart and I'm having a heart attack. I mean, my heart was just being squeezed and like knives jabbing in it and I'm sweating and I just pass out. And I wake up and they're taking a wallet in my mouth They thought I was going to chew my gums to death, I guess. I don't know. I just leave me alone, you know, stubborn, sweet. I got up, took three steps and I fell down. And they uh, called an ambulance, and they called me to the hospital. And I remember in that ambulance, I was laying there, and I was passing out, and I was waking up, and the sweat was pouring off me. And, and I was saying, dear God, is there stuff to help me except the seeming bad thing? What am I saying that for? And I was going crazy. I was going nuts. You know, I was dying. That's seemingly bad, you know. So, <laughs> and I got to the hospital, and who was at the hospital that met the girl he walked in was Mary Regan. She worked at that hospital, and she grabbed my hand. I'll never forget that. And we rolled, they rolled me in and uh, four days later I get out of the hospital and you know what it said on the medical report? It said obesity and irritable bowels, period. (laughs) A little (laughs) gas escaped, I ate my ribcage for Christ's sake, you know. (laughs) But the prayer worked! The prayer worked! My God! The prayer worked! Two weeks later, my daughter, who was 19 and gorgeous, gorgeous girl, Oh, blonde hair, beautiful figure, just, and a sweetheart of a gal. She said to Sally, my wife and I, she was going to move out, finally, you know, and she was going to move in with Joe, and Joe was sitting at the kitchen table with a hat on, with those dingleberries hanging down, and you don't wear hats in my house, you know, but he was sitting there with that stupid hat. You know, and a hog motorcycle out in front, and a known doper. We knew Joe was a known doper. And I just completely went insane. Just totally went insane. I took Joe, and I grabbed him by the back of the neck, and I threw him through the plate glass window. I mean, that's insanity, you know. And he just went flying. He says, but I love her, you know. They only known her two weeks, you know. (laughs) And I just threw him, and I went running back. He got on that motorcycle, and he took off, you know. And I went over and I started counseling my daughter. I started to force my will on my daughter. I started to tell her, you can't move out. You can't move in with that doper. You're not a doper. And on and on. I slapped her across the face. I turned her over my knee and I spanked her. She was 19 years old. And I was two years sober, for Christ's sakes, you know. And I went insane, you know. Totally insane. And she moved out the next day anyway, you know. And she moved in with Joe. And I went to Clancy, and I says, Clancy, I want to kill that kid. Oh, I, re- I don't mean kill, I mean kill him! I really wanted to kill him! And uh, he says, write about it. Write about it? What the hell good is that? You know? Why should I write about it? You know? He's just right about it. And, you know, I was used to taking direction, and I said, okay. And I went home, and I wrote, I don't know, 8, 10, 12 pages, handwritten. And I took it out, and I found my daughter, and I handed it to her, and I says, this is how I feel. And I said... Uh, all of my wife, my, your mother and I will be available if you ever need this. Walked away. It's like a thousand pounds off my shoulders. Writing about it works. Write, a stupid thing like writing about it works. And I walked away. And about uh, another two weeks went by and I got a phone call at 5.30 in the morning. It was St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica. And we lived in Woodland Hills, over the hill. And they said, we think we have your daughter in the hospital and she's in intensive care. And uh, you better come to see if it's her. I jumped in my car, and I drove over that mountain, and I called Clancy, and Clancy was there in five minutes. That's what sponsors are for. When you need them, they're there. And he was there. And I walked in with my wife and Clancy, and we met the doctor. And the doctor said, "Uh, yes, we found out that it is your daughter. They were on our dope run, her and her boyfriend, and they were, you know, when you're on dope runs, you don't have identification on. I guess, because they didn't have any identification, and he turned her car over, his little sports car, turned it over, and her face hit the pavement, and half her face was just torn and ripped off. She had 368 stitches from here to here. She had lost her, her sight in the eyes. She lost her feelings. She lost everything, and they had operated on her seven times during that night as a Jane Doe, and we met the doctor, and the doctor said, and I don't know if doctors say this too often, but he said... Mr. and Ms. Carpenter, your daughter probably will not live. She's in intensive care, and she's unconscious, and we've had seven operations on her, and um, the only thing I suggest you do is go to the chapel we provide in this hospital and pray to the God of your understanding. I don't know if doctors say that, but thank God this one did, you know, because we trudged to the little chapel, and my wife and I, and Fancy, got on our knees. I got on my knees for the first time since I was nine years old. It says somewhere I've heard, you know, if we stick around this program long enough, we'll be forced to our knees, you know. And I was forced to my knees. And I didn't want my daughter to die, you know. And I said, dear God, as I understand, please help me to accept this seemingly Any bad thing is necessary for my growth. And if I find it necessary for her to die, I'll accept that. If you find it necessary for her to live, I'll accept that. And I got up. Clancy got up and Sally got up. And we walked into the waiting room. And Clancy said, you know, here's what I want you to do. He says, I want you to be available. I want you to go to your meetings. I want you to sit halfway back in the meeting. I don't, I I don't want you to talk about it to anybody. He says, I want you to be available for members of Alcoholics Anonymous can, you know, and find some new people to sponsor. He says, and it's in God's hands. Exactly what we did, you know. And about three weeks later, she made it. She came out of intensive care. And she was in the hospital for another, about another three months before she came out. And during that time this Joe, we had a restraining order against him not to see her because he was about ready to go to jail anyway. And he was sneaking in the back of this hospital one day and I had pulled up and I saw him and I caught him and I went for him. I still had that I still had that hate and that anger, you know, of what he did to my daughter, you know. And I grabbed him back in the back of the neck. I snuck up behind him and I started squeezing and I was gonna choke him to death. And I mean, I re- really, I'd lost, I was insane, again. And I was choking this kid to death. And a big security officer grabbed me and just jerked me off. And thank God, you know, cause I had to killed him. And he ran. And he ran. Two or three weeks later, they found him in a cave of up, up the city of Burbank. With his hands tied behind his back and a bullet in the back of his head. You know? I didn't have to kill him anymore. You know? He had killed himself, you know? And he didn't do that to my daughter. My daughter did it to herself. You learn that the hard way. You learn that, you know, in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and uh, so she got out of the hospital and she uh, was, she gained up to about 230 pounds and she was ugly again and she was miserable and, you know, she just started drinking and using and for 17 years she drank and used, 17 years. Put a belly, a bulletin, a gun in her belly one time, pulled the trigger, tried to commit suicide and... Raced to UCLA and went in to meet the doctor, and the doctor was kind of chuckling, you know. And I said, what's wrong, Doc? I said, my daughter, how is she? No, she's all right. She, she gained so much weight, the boat went in here and came out over here and didn't even hurt her, you know. <laughs> and that incident forced her to try AA. She didn't make it, but she tried AA. And uh that little girl has eight and a half years of sobriety in Pony, Montana, for Christ's sakes, you know. And we thought we wanted her to find sobriety in Los Angeles. You know? <laughs> and I have a son, uh, Kyle, who uh, came home one day and uh, there was bullets. And the whole front of the house was shot up and the car was shot up. And, like, God, I ran in the house. I was like, Sally, my God, where are you? Are you all right? And I thought she was dead. And uh, she comes strolling out of the kitchen you know, with her little robe on, you know. And she said, oh, everything's all right. I said, what do you mean everything's all right, you know? The house is shot up. She said, well, I know that. She says, Kyle forgot to pay his cocaine bill. And I said, oh, okay, you know, I understood that, you know. And that kid is still struggling. He's still struggling, but he's made, he's had short spurts, you know. And then my other son who lives up here in Seattle and we're in business together, he's been perfect. Perfect son, signs his, signed his shoes, writes his checks, makes sure there's money in the bank, you know. Buys property, pays for everything, it's got 40 acres paid for and a house paid for and, you know, paid for for Christ's sake. He's 43 years old. And I wonder sometime if he's really ours. <laughs> 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 my life is, uh, as good as it probably will ever get. And, uh, the reason my life is as good as it probably will ever get is because, uh, I have an attitude of gratitude. I have a little pin here that says attitude of gratitude. Hal Marty from Washington DC gave me that on my 27th birthday at the Capitol building where they have a meeting every Monday and, and Tuesday and all our senators you know, go to and our House of Representatives go to, you know. It's called yays and nays. And he gave me that little pin and it, it really means something, you know. Because if we have an attitude of gratitude, you know, it's pretty hard to get any hate and any fear in our, in our system. And, uh, I still, I have an enthusiasm for this program, tremendous enthusiasm for life today, and it's all because of AA, real AA, you know, not AA plus this, not AA and this, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, one drunk talking to another drunk, one drunk learning how to scrub the floors and pick up the ashtrays and go to prisons and do all the things, you know, that we do. And I don't feel important anymore. God, what a good feeling. And I know I can't force my will on another human being. I can sure suggest a lot of things as a sponsor or a friend or a member of AA. I can't force my will on any person I sponsor. I can suggest. And I can walk and talk like I talk. And if I do that, I feel good. My life is good. On June 5th of this year, I uh, for two months I was having dizzy spells and I was passing out. And I woke up one night and I was totally paralyzed. I had no function, you know. And uh, my wife got me in bed and I and I went back to sleep. And the next day I went to the doctor and he took all kinds of tests and everything. And he said you need an operation. I had uh, two arteries, the vertebral arteries going into the stem of your brain. And one was never attacked. The other was blocked 99%. And I was dying. I was literally dying. And they wouldn't operate me on anybody in Los Angeles in Southern California, even the Scripps Hospital, all those fantastic. They wouldn't operate on me because they were scared. It was so close to the brain and the spinal column. And they sent me to the UCSF, University of California, San Francisco Hospital. What a marvelous hospital. I went up there, and for three days, they tested me, and uh, I talked to my sponsor every day, talked to my wife, talked to my friends and AA, and uh, my sponsor said, hey, do what the doctors tell you to do, you know, just do what they tell you to do, and uh for three days, I laid in that hospital bed, and I was overlooking old Kezar Stadium, it was really kind of funny, my room was right here, and there was Kezar, where I played football with the dieters, you know, it's kind of neat, you know. Well, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die just watching the old football field, you know. <laughs> and anyway, three days later, they said uh, I came to my room. Four doctors, and they said uh, you need an operation. And uh, if you don't allow us to operate, you'll probably die in two weeks or more. And they told me why. They showed me the pictures, you know. And I said, okay. I said uh, I've talked it over with my people. I said. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to you four doctors and God as I understand it. You know, that's the AA way. It's not a religious way. It's a spiritual way. A spiritual way. And you know something? I had no fear whatsoever of dying. No fear. Figured if I'm going to die, I'm going to die. It's okay. I got 27 years. We've had a good life. We've got kids. My life is full. And I'm a member. Sobered member of Alcoholics Anonymous. So they took and wheeled me in the next morning and operated about four to five hours the first day and wheeled me out and back in the next day and another two or three hours and two days later I felt like a million dollars. They had done the job, you know. And they had only done, I think it was 12 or 13 operations before that and they lost 20%. So it was, you know, a pretty serious thing. Anyway, they brought me, they knew that I made pizza, I wood-burning pizza. They brought me a big pizza with candles in it, these four doctors in their doctor's uniform, singing happy birthday. It goes to my fifth, 65th birthday, June 9th, you know. And Jesus, you know, I, I just felt so good. And I have felt good ever since that operation. I have felt good ever since I became a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, really. So, little by little, better and better and better. If you're out there tonight and you're having problems and you don't know whether you should listen to your sponsor or you shouldn't listen to your sponsor or you know, or your your relationship is on the on the skids or you know, whatever, you know. Those are all seemingly bad things. And if you work through a seemingly bad thing, what does it end up? It ends up a good thing. And what happens is there are no bad things in our life. They're only seemingly bad, which they are. I'm going to die. That's pretty seemingly bad. But I accepted it. I worked through it. You know? And you can do the same thing. And that third step in my life has put the hot fudge, you know, on the hot fudge sundae. The hot fudge sundae is pretty good without the hot fudge because it's you know vanilla ice cream and nuts and cherries, you know. But you put that hot fudge on it melts the ice cream real, you know, and you put that spoon in, and it's perfection, you know. And that's what the third step is to Alcoholics Anonymous, as far as I'm concerned, really is. And I have a sponsor, and I hope I have the same sponsor forever. And I do what my sponsor says, and you should do that too. Don't question your sponsor; just do it, because that sponsor really. Is my higher power, and my higher power is God, as I understand it. And if that is really true, and I really believe it is, that is God speaking through another human being, allowing one drunk to talk to another drunk to get the electricity and the ions float. to enable that new man, like Dr. Bob, when Bill made the call, let that new man feel feeling of that maybe I can make it too. Maybe I can become comfortable too like this man is. And then the magic starts and the magic continues on as long as both parties are willing to communicate. You, know, you can't sponsor somebody that don't want to be sponsored. You can't sponsor somebody if you tell them to do something they don't want to do it. They got to do it there. They got to go out maybe again. Or you got to put the gun to their head, which I've had a few do that. I've had a few overdose, kill themselves, write letters to their mom and dad saying, bye. You know, what kind of a deal is that, you know? We're involved in life today. This trip up here has been so fantastic because I'm alive, you know? I have feeds. I have a sponsor. I have friends like Johnny and Corky and... Rick and all the other people I know up here. I have 10,000 friends down there and all over the country. It's all because I'm a drunk. And it's all because you're a drunk that you're here. It's all because we never have to take another drink again as long as we live, as long as we're willing to pay the price. And the price is attitude, enthusiasm, and love of our fellow man. Thank you very much.